Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you're listening to Pregnancy Parenting and Politics, the podcast where that's what we talk about. I am a nurse. I am the author of the book Common Sense Pregnancy and this week I am pulling in our friend, midwife Chris Beard. Hi Chris. Hi Jeannie. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I wanted to get you in this week to just kind of Let's talk a little bit before we um, get into our guest conversation, because there's just been so much going on this last month. So first of all, hi, how are you? Well, I am doing great. I am feeling very optimistic about the future, even though I know there's a lot of work to be done. And, um, you know, I think that for me, hearing that our next president is going to be Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is going to be the vice president, just unleashed an acknowledgement of how stressful the last four years has been for me as a person, as a mother, and as a nurse. How about you? Yeah, the same. You know, I'm not in the trenches like you are with um, nursing anymore. So it's been a different kind of thing for me. Um, You've really been in it. And I have been really worried about you and other healthcare workers if the um, election, you know, went for Trump, that we would just continue for however long in the future we can see without having any kind of COVID relief plan in place. So as soon as, you know, we knew that Joe Biden was going to be the president, I felt that huge wave of relief, like, oh, thank God the grownups are here and they're going to fix it. That's exactly what I said to myself. And that's the conversation I've had time and time again with friends who are both on the front lines as healthcare workers and those who aren't, you know, I think we all feel like let's get back to competence in government. Let's actually have a plan. And I feel like, unfortunately, you know, COVID numbers are spiking all around the country and Oregon and Washington, which has have been sort of coming along in the yellow zone are moving into the orange and probably into the red, which means our cases are going up, our hospitalizations are going up and our deaths are going up. Um, unfortunately, because there isn't a national plan in place, you know, we're, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I'm yeah. afraid that regardless of whatever, um, plan we can put into place after January 20th, it's going to feel real bad to people, but we are in terrible shape. And I read something interesting the other day. I'm not sure if you saw this, but there was, I don't do Twitter, but several of my friends do. And somebody sent me a, I guess you call it a tweet showing my age here, um, (laughs) regarding um, a, a doctor from, I think it's North Dakota said, you know, we've been trying to sway people with the numbers. Let's try to sway people with the stories of frontline healthcare providers. And so there were just paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of people who, um, you know, nurses and doctors in North Dakota and about what they're facing on the front lines. I think North Dakota is the absolute worst state in the nation right now for cases, for hospitalizations and for deaths. And it's worse than some countries. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's it's pretty shocking to hear the stories of the people who are really in the bad places. And I just really hope that we don't get that way in Oregon. But, you know, we could. We could be in a bad spot in two months. But I'm hoping so, once we get, you know, once we get Joe Biden in place, 
and Dr. Fauci again can speak his mind and we're listening to the science, you know, I think we will come out of it, but it's going to take some, it's like turning the Titanic at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And we're getting a lot of resistance to turning the Titanic. And it's mm-hmm. it's hard for us to understand, um, coming from where we do, from a healthcare position. Um, but here we are just a couple of days before Thanksgiving. And here in Oregon, for listeners outside of our state, um, we have a pretty strict, we have some pretty strict restrictions in place. And um most of us, many of us are having the smallest Thanksgivings of our lives to be able to accommodate that. And yet, you know, you hear that there were what, 2 million people who traveled over the Thanksgiving holidays. And I just got to wonder, really, can't you help us turn the Titanic? You know? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty disheartening to realize that, you know, you and I can be quarantined at home doing all the things we're supposed to do, washing our hands, wearing a mask, not having parties, not seeing our family, not seeing our grandkids. And, you know, somebody down the street can make a, or cross the pond or cross the river can make a different decision. And it doesn't matter. Then it's, it's negated everything that I've been doing for the last, you know, eight months. Right. Right. So So we've been, we've been talking a lot in my family, which, you know, I have a big sprawling family. And generally for Thanksgiving, everyone comes to my house and, you know, we can have anywhere from 20 to 30 or more people here this year. It's just going to be the people that live in my home. And, um, you know, it's, we've been talking a lot about personal bubbles because there are some family members who are going to be alone and, um, it's heartbreaking to me that, you know, here we are coming up on this holiday and the healthiest, best, safest choice we can make is to not be with our loved ones. Um, two of my daughters, I won't be able to be with this year because they're not in our household. And yet, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. And yet that's what we have to do. And it's a very, very small price to pay, especially when we consider that people like yourself are going to the hospital taking care of all the sick patients. So what are you seeing? So what I'm seeing in my clinic is I'm seeing a lot of people who are pregnant, who are COVID positive. My COVID, I mean, last week, I probably had in my full clinic day, I probably had 10 pregnant women and three of them had been, had been COVID positive within the last, you know, within the last 90 days. And so that number is going up. And so that to me, I mean, for me, my highest risk is in the clinic because I'm seeing so many patients during the day. And we ask patients not to come if they have active COVID symptoms or if they're COVID positive within the last 14 days. I think that's what the guideline is. You know, it changes every day. So I I really, I'm not sure what the actual, if it's 14, if it's 10 or, or what it is from the onset of symptoms or fever. But, you know, people really want to be seen. And so they lie. And then when they get in the room, they reveal that they are COVID positive or they have COVID symptoms, which mm. puts me and my staff at risk and adds tremendous work to the day. Because anytime we have somebody who has COVID symptoms that hasn't been truthful, we got to bleach that room down. Yeah. You know, somebody has to go in there and like, 
it's not a hazmat suit, but in a disposable gown and a shield and, you know, full on protection to get that room clean for the next patient. So, you know, the clinic is the riskier place where I'm currently working. You know, my hospital is seeing an increase in COVID numbers um, for our pregnant women, but we are COVID testing all people who are having scheduled procedures like a C-section or an induction. And then if you come in an active labor and you're going to get admitted, you get a rapid COVID test on admission. Um, so generally we know people's COVID status on my unit, but it doesn't mean that somebody who's pre who, who's been exposed, that's going to get sick tomorrow. I don't know if they're going to test positive today. They might not yeah. test positive till tomorrow, but they're probably yeah. infectious today. So, you know, I think we have talked to you about my gear. Well, the gear has increased yet again this week. Um, so I'm wearing my usual hospital scrubs, a scrub hat, an N95, a regular surgical mask, my own prescription glasses, and now like a welder's face shield for every patient interaction. Do you wear a gown over your scrubs? Um, I do not wear a gown over my scrubs unless I'm actually doing a birth, mm. but I, but I can change my scrubs, you know, as often as I want during a shift. Cause there's a big old cupboard full of them. Yeah. Um, but you know, for my own personal protection, protecting my mucous membranes of my mouth, my eyes, that's what mm -hmm. we have to do. So why do you think people are not telling the truth? Are they afraid and they want to come in and be reassured that the baby's okay? I think. I think it's probably a combination of that or feeling like COVID is just not that big of a deal. So why are we getting all fussy about it? Mm. You know, most, if they know anyone who's, I mean, the thing about Oregon is our numbers are fairly low. So mm -hmm. many of our friends and family and extended neighbors have never, don't know anyone who's had COVID. And if they do, the person that they know just had a little sniffle and felt fine after a couple of days, you know, felt like they had allergies and then felt fine. So their perception is that this is a mild illness and it's not a big deal. And so why would they care if they told us? But, and that may be the case for 75% of people who get COVID, but the other percentage of people who get COVID get moderately to severely ill. And, you know, I don't know if you're reading the current thoughts on, you know, what COVID actually does to your body. But, you know, initially we thought COVID was a respiratory disease. And now we're really finding out that it's a cardiovascular disease, that people are having long-term impact on their hearts and on their blood vessels, which means, you know, strokes and clots and all kinds of scary stuff for people who are young. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, my guess is people are, people are selfish and they want to be reassured that their baby is fine, which isn't selfish, but, you know they want to come in even if they're being told not to come in. Yeah. That's the reason that the the people are probably not telling the truth about their symptoms. Now I will say that most of my patients are extremely grateful to have the option to have either a video visit or a telephone visit instead of coming in. They mm -hmm. can feel their baby moving and they know they're fine and mm -hmm. they don't want to come in because they don't want to be exposed to who else is in our clinic. Right. Right. Well, it would be great if we had more people helping turn the Titanic. Yeah. But I do feel like we've got some hope. We've got some hope now. I do feel like we have some hope. And I feel like the, the, the fact that there are two very promising vaccines is really incredible. And I feel like I'm going to be 
the first or maybe second in line if you're ahead of me when Dr. Fauci says, get this vaccine. Good. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. And I feel like we're going to have a national response to COVID after January 20th that's going to entail all the components of a successful infectious disease um, program. And I feel very, I feel really glad about that. Me too. Would it have happened in March? What if it had happened in March? We'd be living entirely different lives by now. We'd be living different lives. You'd be seeing your daughters for Thanksgiving. Many people would have an additional family member sitting at the table with them. You know, my heart breaks for the 250,000 families that are having a missing member. Yeah. You know, me too. And it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. So not. Yeah. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit um, and uh, talk about uh, the topic that I'm going to be covering with this week's guests. So this week's guests are two women who work um, with finding the funds and training for doulas to work with women in the African-American communities of of New Jersey. And um, they're coming at it from two different directions. One is coming from the funding level. She works for a large foundation that is works with vulnerable populations. And then the other is a woman who is working, um, you know, in, in community health and community organization, going at it with, with at that approach. And they're, the conversation that we'll be having is focusing on the different ways that we need to work together to address the disparities that we're seeing in maternal health care. And you and I have spoken before on the podcast about the really horrendous outcomes that we're seeing, especially for women in African American communities and um, women of color. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about what it's been like for you to work with doulas in the hospital, because you've been working with doulas for a good long time now. I think I've been working with doulas since the very early years of my career, and I'm just going to be wrapping up my 27th year as a certified nurse midwife who works primarily in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so I can't really remember when doulas came on the scene, but, you know, I've certainly worked with doulas at, at most of the hospitals I've worked at over my career. And I have to say, I love patients who have a doula to support them. And, you know, we, we see the same doulas, you know, there's a few big doula um, groups here in Portland and we see the same faces, you know, time and time again, if you've worked as long as I have, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it always just tickles me and warms my heart when I open the door to a patient room and I see, you know, my all time favorite doula. Can I say her name? Yes, please. My all-time favorite doula, her name is Cindy. Her last name is escaping me. And she works for Doula Love here in Portland. Mm. And I also really love Wendy Sharp, who is the owner of Doula Love. And mm-hmm. those, when I, when I come to care for a patient and I find that they have the support of a doula, let alone a doula that I deeply love, it really makes for a wonderful relationship because, you know, the doula and I have known each other for years a while, years probably, and mm-hmm. the patient and I don't know each other yet, but we have that commonality of having this, this wonderful support person in common. And I think that 
in today's world, um, regardless of what your birth plan entails, you know, whether you're a single, single by choice mom who's planning to get an epidural but just wants an extra support person for your birth, or you're somebody who's hoping for an unmedicated birth, or you're somebody who had a traumatic birth the first time and you don't know what's coming the second time, but you want extra support. I think that having a doula is the ticket to having a birth experience that um, will restore you and feed your soul. I and, do too. And I, I think too. that, you know, a doula offers not only personal and physical support to you, but they have experience and knowledge about hospital situations and they can help you talk through you know, if you're being, if you're being given some choices or you're, you're being asked to accept an intervention, they can help you decide whether those things are right for you. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're a good reminder that patients always have the right to say no. And patients always have the right to ask for time to think about a suggestion unless they hear the words from their care provider that, you know, your life is in danger or your baby's life is in danger. If you don't hear those words, you should have the opportunity to talk amongst your support people to decide if that intervention or suggestion is right for you. I love it. I love and it. I think doulas are really great at helping you sort that out. And, you know, a lot of times people have a pre-existing relationship with the doula. So the doula knows them. The doula knows what they're hoping for. The doula knows what they're afraid of. And I think that's really helpful. And the other piece of having a doula, I think that sometimes gets forgotten is it is a lot to ask partners to support their people in labor when they don't have an experience in the medical system. Birth is hard. Yeah. Birth is painful. And to watch a partner trying to support their birthing person through a process that they're scared of and they've never seen their partner in pain like that. They've never seen, they've never been a part of this process. I think it's a lot to ask them to do that. Mm -hmm. And a doula is also a support person for your partner. Yeah, absolutely. I so, often think that it's, it's a funny idea to ask um, a husband or, you know, the, the baby's father to be that person for mom, to be the one, one person, mm -hmm. because they've never been through labor. They've never been, they don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They can take the classes and they can practice with you, but they've never been there. And it's overwhelming. And it's many, many, many do an excellent job. You and I have both seen that oh, yeah. thousands of times. Excellent job. Um, but to have somebody who's been to hundreds of births is a really different experience. Yeah. And I think, mm -hmm. I think that we sometimes, we overlook that. I do too. Yeah. 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 So if well, every woman could have a doula, I think things would be different. I agree. If every woman had a doula, I think, I think we would see some different outcomes in our system. I do too. Well, they are facing some big challenges in New Jersey by utilizing more um, doulas and uh, finding funding. And I am really looking forward to talking to this week's guest about it. So let's take a real, real quick break. And then we're going to come back and get them on the line. Okay, we're back. 
Chris, I hope that you have a really, really great Thanksgiving with your girls. And um, we are ready to get this week's guests on the line. We're going to be speaking with Roncha Dickerson and Raquel Jeffers. And thanks, Chris. I'll talk to you soon. You're welcome. Bye-bye, Jeannie. Hi, Raquel. Hi, Roncha. This is Jeannie. How are you? Hi, how are you? Good. Good. So I am in Portland, Oregon, where we are just about to hit sunset on a beautiful afternoon. Where are you two? Well, this is Rasha, and I'm in Camden, New Jersey, and we are experiencing beautiful wet fall rain. Very soggy today. And it's the evening where I am. That's my usual weather. I'm in Portland, Oregon, and we get Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Raquel, this you're also in New Jersey? Yep, I'm in New This is Raquel, Mason I'm Jeffers, and I am in New Jersey <laughs> in the um, Princeton area, right. in the middle of the state, and um, just really grappling with a 70 degree fall evening. <laughs> I am a little jealous. <laughs> We're down in the 40s, and it's pretty funky here. But I spend too much time whining about the weather. And this year, I'm going to do better about that. I, I really am. It's my goal. Yeah. <laughs> so I read your bios before we picked up the line today. But my first hard question for all of my guests is this. And uh, Rancha, how about if we start with you? The question sure. is, who are you and what do you do? Great question. Well, I'm Rancha Dickerson. I am a mother of six wonderful children. I am a wife, um, community organizer, living in the city of Camden, New Jersey, and I'm also a community doula, where I work with uh, women in my community that are expecting. I see, I support them from through prenatal visits to labor and delivery to postpartum visits, and I could also train other women in my community to become certified doulas to help strengthen uh, her healthier birthing outcomes. Um, I also dabble in the education justice world where I fight I fight and communicate as a parent who is an active mother of six children who grew up in public education. So to me, I think all the work that I do in doula world, organizing, advocacy, all connect because it connects to the family. Um, I've made that my service for life is to make sure that the community that I live in it's constantly being given opportunities and access to have equitable, um, equitable and equal outcomes um, for our for the future of our city. So that's the kind of work that I do, and that's who I, I am. That. Yeah. And what about the fun factor? What do you do when you're not working? Fun factor. Yeah, the fun factor is um, just got a puppy, animal oh. lover. I I got a beautiful uh, South African borable. Her name is Sable. So we go on long walks and runs now, and I'm just loving puppy time. But fun factor, other things are I love to play a little bit of basketball. I love to talk trash with basketball. I'm a sports girl, and I enjoy um, outdoors. I enjoy outdoors with, you know, just doing anything outdoors that has any kind of activity. And other fun factor is I enjoy organizing events. I love doing events to help people smile and walk away and feel so good that I look for no credit for doing the event, but I look for all I look for all the beauty of seeing folks say, "Is this for me? Is this really for me? And is it is it free? 
yeah, I love doing stuff like that. That's my that's my fun factor. All right, that's a really great answer. We have a lot in common. All about Thanks. dogs. Love being outdoors, <laughs> and I too am a mother of many. Yeah, yes, yeah. there it is. <laughs> Raquel, it's your turn. Who are you, and what do you do? Um, so also a lot in common. Only I, I'm a mother of two children who are uh, get getting to be grown. A 20 year old and a 16 year old. Um, and that is really fun. And um, I have been working for the Nicholson Foundation, which is a New Jersey-based foundation that's focused on improving the health and well well-being of vulnerable populations in the state. I'm a program officer there, and I've been working there for seven years on um, maternal child health um, in, innovations in maternal and child health. Um, and also population health. And before I came to the foundation, I actually uh, worked for the state of New Jersey for 10 years. Uh, and my last role was the um, director for mental health and addiction services for the state. So I have always had this kind of parallel work, both in the maternal child health space and also in the behavioral health space. And uh, often that uh, world intersects where I look at issues related to um, behavioral health, mental health and addictions and maternal and child health. Um, and for fun, mm-hmm. I like to, oh, I also love to take long walks with my very little dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I also really love cooking. I, um, my, my, um, my heritage is uh, that I'm a Sephardic Jew and my family comes from Syria and Turkey. And I love to cook uh, food from that tradition uh, and go to the market and find fresh things and um, uh, make Middle Eastern meals. Yum. Sounds I yummy. <laughs> I know. I'd like to have dinner now, please. Yeah. <laughs> You know, one of the best parts about having grown children is that they cook for me. It's heaven. It's heaven. Right Uh now, um, my grown daughter, who is home with us uh, during COVID-19, is making some sort of fabulous white bean stew. I don't even know what's Mm. in it, but that's what I'm having for dinner. It's awesome. That sounds lovely. I can't wait for that phase, Jean, where the children are now cooking for us. Because, you know, my, my range is 20. I have a 22-year-old, and he's teaching in D.C., and I have a 20-year-old who's a, a junior at Cornell University. But everyone else is still in high in school, so I'm still cooking for that crew, you know? Yeah. So it's like, when will I get those meals that you're talking about? You you guys make that sound so wonderful. I have goals it, now. Like, I'm waiting for children to cook meals. <laughs> yeah, it's really awesome. It's incredible. It's like, who even knew? That that yeah. you have children so that someday they'll make your dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Very right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my twenty-year-old came home and um, was living with us for a while, and she had traveled to Vietnam, so she got us making pho one night a week, which was amazing. Wow. Wow. She would make dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty That's awesome. on our. our our Christmas dinner um, menu list this year is to make pho because it's actually easy to make. Yeah, I know. It's soup. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I want to talk um, about the work that you guys do. And um, so I'm, first of all, I, I've got two questions, but one of them is I want you to help me connect the dots. Um, mm-hmm. We were connected um, regarding the work that you do via the Burke Foundation, which the Nicholson Foundation partners with. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So how did you both, how did you find your way into this part of your career? And Raquel, why don't you go first? How did you find your way into the birth world and the parenting world and the maternal health world? Right. Well, I, I personally, I began um, my career actually in the reproductive health space, mm-hmm. um, you know, over 20 years ago now. Um uh, starting at the Ford Foundation at the time when there was really a international movement for reproductive health and rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, but now um, I really have been um, working, like I said, at the Nicholson Foundation, where the mission is to improve the health and well being of vulnerable populations in the state. And we've had kind of two tracks of work. One has been health and the other has been early childhood. And uh, we had an exec, we have a new executive director that's been on board for the last three years or so, maybe four. And he's a pediatrician, a community pediatrician. And he asked us to really think about the intersection between health and early childhood. So, um, at that intersection was the site was really looking at maternal and infant mortality and the racial disparities. Um, and that really seemed to be a perfect intersection point for the foundation to focus its resources. At the same time, the state of New Jersey, the Department of Health, was really leading this charge. So we uh, because the foundation has a long history of really trying to partner with government to innovate and then help them bring things to scale, we stepped in to partner with the Department of Health. Um, so we really decided in, alongside with the Department of Health to focus our resources on training a cohort of Black community doulas using a culturally centered practice that was rooted in self-determination and community connection. And we did this because we know that doulas have Uh, been shown to improve health outcomes. For example, they've been uh, shown to lower C-section rates. Um, They are, um, multiple studies have shown that they can lead to lower rates of paternal and infant health complications, including fewer preterm births and low birth weight infants. And they lower, um, as I said, C-section rates and higher rates of breastfeeding. And, so and they improve um, mothers' re- women's reports of their experiences dramatically. Exactly, their if own. Yeah, if a doula's in the room, it's probably going to be a better birth. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Rancha, tell me about your. How did you find your way here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my story is is kind of crazy, but it makes sense in the world that I'm in. So uh, I'm a mother of six, as I said. Uh, I had four children, uh, uh, natural vaginally, and then I had two C-sections. And through that whole process, I never had a doula. I didn't, I didn't even know what a doula was back in 1997 when I heard, had my first child. And to, it, to date, 
Jeannie and Raquel. If you ask my husband, was he my doula? He'll tell you yes. And I will say absolutely not. Right. But I never had that experience. I never had the experience of having someone there who was my person, who was there to, to make sure that I was okay and to walk me through that process. And when I found out about it, my, my, my transition to find out about it was, uh, watching a YouTube video of Erica Badu, the, the neo-soul artist, actor, amazing, mm -hmm. uh, just overall artist. And uh, she talked about her experience of being an artist and being a doula. And I was like, what is a doula? So she started to talk about her experience and it just struck me so that it made me say, this is something that I would love to do. And that I found out that there is some type of uh, salary that goes along with it, right? So I went on my, my journey to become a doula. I, um, I reached out to another doula, a friend of mine who had received her certification and uh, she connected me to the person who trained her. And then that person, uh, then I was able to get trained. And in about the early 2000s, um, I was helping so many women that was in my village or what we could consider my community with uh, just my experience of being a mother who had uh, multiple children. You know, I had been through just about every variation about up uh, through uh through uh labor and delivery possible you know so i was just sharing my experiences with my village and my community and that kind of led towards me going forth and getting certified and then um my moment came when i was able to get certified through uh through kappa which is one of the um the the, the bigger certification groups um uh in 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 the country so i was able to get my certification through kappa and then um i actually met um, my trainer, Jody Green, who was connected to a lot of women in New Jersey and was a part of the conversation of starting this uh, path to nurture New Jersey under First Lady Tammy Murphy's office. And Jody and I were connected by the hip because Jody said, Rasha, I believe as your trainer, but also as your friend, that we will be able to change birth outcomes for black and brown mothers sooner than later. And she stuck to that and she wrote grants and she stayed connected. And she was a person who had way more experience than I had in the birth world. And she was the connector. So when the opportunity presented itself, Jody said, I have the perfect woman who will be able to be a part of this pilot program that was starting in New Jersey under the First Lady's Initiative to do a Nurture New Jersey program where it was really emphasizing why Black Black um, maternal and um, infant uh, mortality rates were so high. What can we do as New Jerseyans to uh, to put a halt to that? So the focus cities were North New Jersey, uh, Kansas, New Jersey, Trenton, New Jersey, and Atlantic City, New Jersey, and they had the highest statistic rates of Black women uh, with uh, with um, that were that were dying on the table, morbidity and mortality, and also infant mortality. So uh, to make a long story short, that's in, in, in comes Raquel as the funders to support the idea of how do we uh, get women of color, particularly black women, to now become salaried to train to be the, 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 the conduit or the vessel to get more women like them from their communities to come on board to be trained and certified to become doulas in the city that they live in. And then how are we to have a program where they are able to offer their certification uh, services for free to to enroll women who are pregnant in their communities to now receive doula services. So I became a supervisor of that in two cities, in Camden and Atlantic City, where we were able to um, recruit 40 plus women to now be certified doulas, community doulas in these two cities, and also now have access to uh, recruit 
more women that look like me in the cities that I come from to have better birth outcomes and now actually know what a doula is and what a doula does and can say my doula helped me through this process. So through the funding of the Department of Health in New Jersey, through the funding of places like the Nicholson Foundation who believe in those healthier outcomes for black and brown communities, it sparked my uh, journey to where I am right now, um, just being a trainer under the Uzazi Village model, who was the, 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 the group who trained us to be able to have this culturally enriched kind of training module that connects to women of color to be able to not only be a doula, but also be a, a social justice change agent by living in that community that you serve in, you now become a part of all the things that have to happen to make sure that these outcomes are, are clear, they make sense, and we're not just screaming doula as a, as a buzzword, but doula as a change agent. And then it helped us to also face and deal with the racial biases, the uh, institutional racism that was existent in the hospitals that a lot of the women that we were recruiting were having experiences in. So it's been a journey, you know, meeting so many women who, who thought like I did, who uh, was committed to seeing these outcomes happen, to also uh, go into the world of uh, the, the, the private sector who wants to fund, and then also the pe people like the foundations who want to fund and see these things happen, and then having the Department of Health in New Jersey on your back, on your team, and having the First Lady of New Jersey uh, being the number one cheerleader for these outcomes to be real and to sustain communities that I come from. So that's kind of how I connected in this world. <laughs> yeah. Woman by woman, step by step. Here you are. That's it. You're doing mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. If it's okay, I would just want to add that um, I think when this project kind of came across the the as a possibility, it came to the attention of the foundation, I was immediately attracted to it because I actually had a postpartum doula mm -hmm. with my first child. So mm -hmm. you knew um, how valuable it was. It was yeah. really valuable. <laughs> yes. I, I mm -hmm. really, um, you know, I didn't really grow up in a community where I was around a lot of uh, newborns a lot of time. And I was kind of amazed that they handed me this baby and told me to go home and from the hospital, and I didn't really know all that much about what to do. So it was amazing to have a doula. I don't know. I think even if you do grow up with a bunch of babies, once it's your baby, how do you even know how it works? Yeah. Knows? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's true. So true. Yeah. So Black and Latinx and Hispanic women are disproportionately affected by poor maternal health and child health outcomes for a host of reasons. Um, and that's even at the best of times. But now with COVID-19, things are even tougher. Um, mm -hmm. We've also talked a lot about on the podcast here about the value that doulas provide in turning maternal health um, outcomes and experiences around. And for, I think, especially for Black and Latinx and Hispanic women, doulas provide a measure of protection that mm -hmm. ensures that they'll be well-treated, fairly treated, compassionately, and with really the best standards of care. And I'm really grateful that doulas can provide these services in addition to providing labor support, but I'm frustrated that we need them to play defense. And mm -hmm. I wondered what your thoughts are on that. And maybe uh, do, maybe Raquel, you should take that one. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, yeah, no, there's no uh, doubt that um, doulas are particularly for black and brown women and also uh, American, uh, Native American women. Yeah. Um, the doulas are stepping in uh, to really play a role in a, to correct or to improve a system failure, right? So we have, uh, for whatever reasons, for, for historic and important uh, historic reasons, we have uh, layers of uh, systematic issues that, you know, from the, from in the hospital setting, there are issues around uh, over, uh, over intervening or under intervening uh, to address um, issues in the moment. Uh, for example, um, too many unnecessary C-sections are really driven by um, how hospitals are approaching birth. Mm -hmm. um, so there are clinical issues that are happening in the hospital, but there are also systemic issues around social determinants of health and fur even further upstream issues around women's health in general for black and brown women and uh, mm -hmm. ecosystems and environments that are not supporting health for women, particularly in our African-American and Latina and Native American communities. Mm -hmm. So um, for sure, doulas are uh, stepping in and uh, amplify, helping to amplify mothers' voices and listening to their needs. Um, and in that way, they are statistically improving birth outcomes for mothers of color. But they're, the fact that they're needed uh, to really try to improve birth outcomes is a symptom of um, multiple system failures, starting from the clinical health system and really going all the way upstream uh, to the ecosystem that's that's not supporting health for women of color in the, yeah. in, in the country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rancha, how would you, what are your thoughts on that same topic based on your experience in the delivery room? Yeah, I, I, I unite with Raquel. I think uh, also on just on the, the, the level of where we are as duels on a grassroots level, it's just there was a de there's a devaluing of black and brown black and brown voices in the, the hospital uh, in the healthcare system and in hospitals. It's just it it thinks of implicit bias. It thinks of the racial inequities. It thinks of the systemic racism that exists there, right? And duels are a microcosmic you know approach to the overarching issue that 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 is there in hospitals. You know, in just in New Jersey alone, the fact that um, New Jersey uh, is fifth fifth best best overall in infant mortality rate, but black women experience, you know, three to five times the rate of infant death compared to white women, that that's an that's an issue. That's a systemic racism issue. That means that something's not connecting inside of hospitals where women of color, particularly black women, don't feel valued, don't feel secure, don't feel heard, right? And I don't want I, I never want Jeannie to for it to seem like doulas are the answer to the to the cure or the cure to the issue, right? The issue is that we have to be able to um, look at doulas as a part of the care team. Even with COVID, uh, there was there was issues nationally where doulas were not being allowed in the space because of 
the threat of COVID, but we were not even being considered as essential workers. We had women who were pregnant and had their doula in January and February saying, when I'm doing March, I'm having this baby with my doula. But now these new rules come and if the doula was black, it made it even worse. You know what I mean? Like I can't, we can't get in the hospitals or things like that. So um, what we wanted to see was what, what as duels, what we always want to see and push is to number one, amp- amplify the mother's voice and the family's voice and not to negate the father that's inside that space. Too many times uh, families are policed because they're seeing things that are, are not right, that are, uh, that are distasteful, that are unprofessionally done to mothers who are expecting, to fathers who are asking questions. And it creates just more triggers and uh, uh, harder birth outcomes. So we want to, number one, value the voices of women of color, particularly Black women and Black families. And then um, we want to make sure we emphasize uh, that if a doula is in the space with a, with a, with a uh, parent and she's part of care, with an expecting family and she's part of care team, we want to make sure that the, 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 that the clinicians are clear that a doula is not there to take the place of. We're not there to negate the fact of, 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 of doctors and midwives and obstetricians' hard work that they put into uh, their career, but here to be a support and a help to make sure that this family has the best outcome for this birth. And that's the goal. Because if we can if we can sit back and be comfortable in our white jackets and our scrubs and say, I'm doing a good job and all these things because it's happening in your hospital, your hospital sits as an ivory tower in a Black community that has very, very high mortality rates for Black women and Black children and Black infants. So it's, it's important that uh, opportunities like uh, this to have a, to share a mic and have a dialogue to talk about the why, but not to make doula seem as though we're the cure for the, the, the overarching systemic issues that we have to address inside of these healthcare institutions. And, and, and also call it what it is and, e- and even teach on, maybe you're not clear, maybe you're not aware of how you show your implicit bias. Maybe we can help you see that so we can be able to have a healthier relationship and also healthier outcomes. And I believe that's what, in New Jersey, that's what uh, Tammy Murphy, that's what Mrs. Murphy, she did. She was able to use her privilege as a white woman of having a really, really great birth three times three or four, I think three or four times, if I'm not mistaken, and now say, why is it that when I look at my, my sister, my Black sister here, who is just as uh, wealthy as I am, who has just as much knowledge in this, this industry as I do, how come she's still experiencing a worse birth, birthing uh, uh, outcome than I, than I have ever experienced? When we call that to the carpet, then we are making um, a difference. And doulas played a role in being able to show the value of that and be able to be clear on, I'm not here to be the mouthpiece for this mother, but I am here to be an advocate and in service to make sure that this family and this mother and this baby does not die. If celebrities have, have witnessed, we've witnessed celebrities, Beyonce told her story about her issue in the hospital, Serena Williams, the tennis superstar, told her, her story about her devaluing inside of a hospital setting. What makes you think that women who are from communities that I come from, who don't have the money, nor the notoriety, nor, nor, nor the status, you know, on a social and in, in social or elite world will ever have their voices valued. So a doula can become the, 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 uh, the, 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 the person in that room to make sure that we're not, we're not, we're, we're not pointing fingers. We're just calling out accountability and let's make sure that if, if would you allow this, would you allow this to happen to your niece? to your daughter, to your grandchild. Yeah, yeah. Uh, doulas are a bridge. They're a bridge mm-hmm. between 
helping the family understand what's going on clinically and um, throughout the labor and birth process. And they are a, a bridge for the healthcare team to understand what that mother and family need. Mm-hmm. And also just to know that, hey, they brought in ancillary support. So there's a witness here. There's somebody who knows what's going on. It held, it holds people accountable. I think that that's a factor that mm-hmm. it makes people pay closer attention to their the way that they take care of their patients when there's a doula in the room, mm-hmm. especially I think for I think any patient population that maybe their healthcare providers don't know well or understand fully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I worked as a labor and delivery nurse for many, 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 many years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when a really good doula was present, um, it was sort of the amplified or exalted version of having a good birth plan because all of us that were taking care of this woman understood that she knows what's going on to the point where she's hired somebody. Mm-hmm. to make sure she gets what she wants in this birth experience. And, you know, even though a doula certainly can't guarantee you're going to have a certain outcome, their insurance, they're there to, they do mm-hmm. a, a valuable job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, also, I think that's so right, Jeannie. And I think that, um, you know, when we think about the issue of maternal and infant mortality, there the pathways that are leading to these adverse outcomes are really multi-dimensional and have different and and multi-causal and have different causes that mm-hmm. are accumulative over a lifetime and across generations. So they really have social roots that intersect and um, inform a unique and complex condition Mm -hmm. of lived experience. And so, and our healthcare and public health systems were really not designed to accommodate um, all of the social complexity. No. So in a way, the doula is holding uh, that experience and beginning to uh, reshape uh, in partnership with the health system a different response, a differential response that can really think that can uh, be more sensitive to the social and uh, the social roots of the issues. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I know. We like to do yeah. things, you know, one size fits all. One standard standard of care in labor and delivery or prenatal care or the postpartum period. That's all. doesn't matter who you are. Mm-hmm. This is what we do. And that is so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that the, you know, we all know the birth process is pretty universal for all women, for all time, all around the world. And yet each mm-hmm. family, each birth is unique and yeah. has its own yeah. factors that need to be adjusted to. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I agree. I just want to add one more thing that I thought was unique about my connection to Raquel, the connection to what New Jersey is doing that makes uh, me feel really good about this space that we're in is that we not only were able to create uh, community doors that's different from a private practice door, you know, a community door lives in their community and they're serving beyond just the 
prenatal birth and postpartum world, they're also active in what's happening in their community. But we were also able to connect with legislators and to, to be able to tell, to be able to testify and share our lived and learned experiences in hospitals with share um, stories about uh, our experiences with, you know, uh, case studies with the, the women that we're serving and be able to make some, some transformation in legislation where doulas are now being looked at as a part of how we do uh, push push back at this high mater, mater, mortality rate for for black women and black infants in New Jersey, right? And hoping that we could that can be looked at as a an opportunity or a better practice that can be used across the country. I think being able to talk to your own your legislators in your state to let them know that you have the power of the pen to change things is the way that we can be able to get those folks who are in uh, these hospitals that are used to their way to see that legislation is changing so that we can get better outcomes. We are, we are introducing uh, more of the care team at an earlier time in the pregnancy, at 17 weeks even, to be a part of how we can get better outcomes. So that was a, a key thing that I wanted to just mention in this conversation, because I think that was a component that was transformational for me, that, that was helpful to bridge the gap as we are as doulas. Yeah, just to, uh, to build on that, um, so two really great examples of how we're seeing uh, leadership in in the state of New Jersey really respond to the um, kind of enthusiasm and excitement and engagement of um, the doulas who are working in the community is that during COVID, um, originally, um, doulas were not permitted into the labor and delivery room because there was not enough PPE. Uh, personal protective equipment for them to be in the labor and delivery room. Um, and then in uh, on October 21st, the Commissioner of Health, uh, Judy Persicelli, issued an executive director that recognized the role of doulas as essential part of the expectant mother's care team. And so they were exempted from limits on support persons uh, throughout the women's hospital stay during the COVID-19 epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a right. really exciting reversal that we saw. And then the other major policy shift that we're seeing in the state that we're very excited about, and uh, Rancha and I have been working in partnership with Department of Health and our Medicaid office, is that I think New Jersey is on track to become uh, one of almost, I think, four states that would begin providing Medicaid reimbursement. That's what I wanted to ask you. I think Oregon Mm -hmm. is one of those states as well. Uh I know that, you know, a lot of women who have financial resources hire them uh, privately and Mm -hmm. are rarely paid for by their health insurance and they just pay for a doula out of pocket. But of course, that makes it inaccessible for the majority of women who are having babies. Mm -hmm. And one of the concerns that I have um, is so often work that women do that is critical, valuable, um, life-saving is Mm -hmm. devalued monetarily. And it's expected Mm -hmm. that they're going to provide it for free. And we all know that doula work is time consuming. It requires Mm -hmm. a degree of knowledge and it means that you need to be willing to sit at the bedside for hours and hours Mm -hmm. and hours and they aren't often paid what they're worth. Mm-hmm. And that's a concern mm-hmm. that I have, that, that yeah. 
women are so often expected to give away their value. Mm-hmm. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? I guess there isn't a question there. What are your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, I appreciate it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, right, right. With that. I, no, I appreciate it. I think um, and you're right in a private sector, in a private world with private practice and duels, there, there is, you know, there is that, that space where, uh, women are going through service agreements and contracts and not being paid through their insurance, but, you know, working it out where they have these, this payment agreement, right? But um, for a lot of us who are down, like this program has started and it's a pilot program as we shift to this Medicaid world. And I'm so grateful that they have us as doulas at the table to say what that shift will look like, right? How we shift to know that um, doulas have what, what will be needed to make this work well, um, I can't say that we agree on every, it's not like a, it's not like a care bear moment. We agree on everything. Oh, it's so much love in the room. Oh, thank you. Medicaid It's not like that, but there is some critical conversation that's happening and courageous conversation that's happened to make people think out the box. And it's just taking people from being just in the office to now seeing it on from the, from the, the birds, the eye view that, that we see it on as doulas. That's one side of it. The second side of it is, is that yes, uh, devaluing the, the service, right? There, there's, there could be a conversation around doulas do a little bit more, we consider like maybe seat hours with uh, expecting mothers than maybe a midwife does because we are there for the, the duration and through, you know, uh, the birth and afterwards, right? So uh, that could be a conversation too, but we want to make it clear, you know, to anyone who is thinking of how to fund doulas through, through the through the Medicaid industry, that we want to make sure that we can make this a lucrative opportunity for women, all women, especially Black women of color, uh, BIPOC, uh, Black Indigenous people of color who are in this birth world to be able to have a career in this space. We, we have to be sure that uh, we're valuing the, the time, the effort, and just the energy that's put in to support what we consider one of our most precious, precious, precious luxuries uh, of what a, when a woman is going through childbirth. So I'm, yeah. I'm hoping that through this transitional time that we're in uh, with Medicaid in New Jersey, that they will become the, uh, the kind of like the, the conduit of showing that being at the table with doulas, being, um, being in a conversation with uh, active doulas has kind of changed the language and also shifted everyone to understand that we have to put the money in and be resourceful, be, be a resource to women who are doing the great work. And that, that's where I see Medicaid. Now, I, I applaud New Jersey Medicaid Department, uh, especially their leadership. Um, uh, they are doing such an amazing job to create it. And also, I want to shout out the, the Department of Health Commissioner, Assistant Commissioner, uh, just being there and saying, how can I roll up my sleeves and make it happen, right? So shout out to Lisa and Jen for just being those two strong warrior women trying to figure out, and as mothers too, how they feel when they look at doulas and their role in making this become a sustainable effort to keep uh, Black women alive and Black children alive during the birth and labor process. Yeah. And beyond, you know, just survival, I think that it's so important that, so that's the bottom, that's the bottom rung, keep people Mm -hmm. alive. That's Mm -hmm. the least that we can do. Mm-hmm. But then we need to evolve what we're doing for women to elevate their experiences so that fewer women come out of their birth experiences just feeling wrecked and mm-hmm. traumatized. And yeah. that is a problem across the board for all women, but especially for women of color. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
thank God that these topics of conversation are coming forward and that we're starting to, to realize the value of compassionate, smart, strategic care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I'm really glad you brought up the issue of maternal morbidity because the data is really um, remarkable. Like for every maternal death, there are 70 cases of severe maternal morbidity yeah. that are yeah. considered quote unquote mere misses. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and that if over the last 20 years, the cases of severe maternal morbidity have increased by over 200%. Mm-hmm. And the, also disproportionately affecting Black women. I think one study found that Black women experience severe maternal mortality at a rate of two, point, two times greater than that of mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have so much work to do. We do. Do you also take care of undocumented and indigenous women? So uh, for what we do at the state of New Jersey, uh, not so much undocumented, but we do have sister allies who are doing that work. So under this program, we're really dealing with women of color. Um, Indigenous women fit in that category, too. But uh, undocumented, um, we have other sister groups that are doing some of that work who focus on that. So we make sure that we if we get some under our in our in our, I guess, um, I guess you would call it like kind of like a database. We make sure that we share and have a network where we can make sure they're still covered. And and that brings me to this other point I want to say. Even during COVID, um, thank God for New Jersey's uh, legislators to say get duels back into the hospitals. But prior to that, we were doing things uh, to make sure that putting a message out there that no woman were birthed alone. We wanted to make sure that even if we had to get on by virtually with you. Um, by cell phone, by whatever, while you're in a hospital, we want to make sure that you did not feel alone in that process because because at one point, a lot of women were just birthing alone. And that 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 was taking us five steps backwards when you were talking about duels are in communities of color, particularly Black communities. And now we're saying women can't bring anyone in, can barely get their partner in the room, and they can't have their doula. We were finding we had a hashtag, you will not birth alone on our watch. So we made sure that we were able to be accessible um, 24 hours with all of the duels that we train to make sure that we can be uh, virtually there with our uh, expectant families um, if, if they, if, when and if they needed us. So that's that part too. Yeah, yeah. So I want, go ahead. I wanted to double back to your point about uh, making sure that doulas actually earn a living wage or even maybe more than just a living wage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think this program has been tremendous. It's really been the flagship of what New Jersey has really come out of the gate to really try to uh, make an impact on uh, our maternal mortality rates. Um, Black women in New Jersey are seven times more likely than white women to die of mm-hmm. a pregnancy-related cause. So... Our grant funds, together with the Department of Health, have trained 79 doulas over the last two years and we they those doulas are have served almost 400 women um and 341 children have been born to date mm-hmm. uh, with support of doulas which is mm-hmm. tremendous mm-hmm. and so as uh Rancha said the 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 challenge now is to kind of transition from grant funds to a Medicaid reimbursement 
in a way that really sustains this workforce that we've really worked so hard to build and we're so proud of. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that New Jersey is going to be coming to the table with some pretty fair rates. I, I know that this has been an issue in other states where the reimbursement rate was really not enough to sustain the workforce. Um, and um, it's really eroded any kind of gains in terms of building the capacity of the workforce. But I, I'm confident that New Jersey right now is on track to provide really a fair reimbursement rate um, so that we can really sustain the workforce that we've built. Thank oh, God. That's so smart. New Jersey can lead mm-hmm. the way on this. I know mm-hmm. that several years ago, when some states were just beginning to get uh, Medicaid reimbursement for doula services, the reimbursement was something like, I don't know, like 75 bucks. <laughs> 75 wow. bucks. You're going to spend, <laughs> you know, 20 hours with this woman in the labor and birth room. That's mm-hmm. nothing. That's yeah. no money. <laughs> yeah. That's nothing. That's, yeah, that's nothing. And, you know, <laughs> the hours that women, you know, you know, if you're a woman who's, who has children, you, you have to find some place for your kids to go. You have to get transportation and show up there. You have to maybe, right. you know, take time off from your day job or whatever it is. Yep. Women mm-hmm. got to be paid. We need to be paid. Absolutely. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you ultimately in your dream life what would you like to see happen to transform maternal health care for women hmm. that's a tough one huh yeah and then i'm i'm going to pass it to you quickly Rancha. i would love to see that every medic every baby that's born or every mom that it delivers while she's on Medicaid should have the opportunity to have a doula in the state. Nice. Mm-hmm. Rancha, how about you? Yeah, I unite, I unite with that. If I could dream big, I would love to see that. And I would love to see the voices of uh, women of color be valued um, in uh, the hospital and in, in this healthcare industry uh, uh, world. I would also love to, to, to know that um, Doulas are being introduced at an earlier time. Um, as we change legislation, let's change what the health books say. Let's change how we teach our children about what a doula is early on so it can be embedded in the mind you know, uh, of our children. We, we're fast to teach about the war on drugs and things like that. How do we teach about the positive reinforcement that we can do to introduce doulas in the world of our young children's minds so it will be it will be the buzzword in the community that same way that we made pacifier a big deal. Let's make doula mm-hmm. this is as 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 as, uh, as, as in- interesting and as and as, as um popular as the pacifier or the binky or the diaper bag. Let's yeah. let's introduce these things early on so it can be a part of um our conversation in homes now that the word is inside of homes, now that it will be an educational piece. I would love to see I would dream big that way. I would also um I would also really love to see, and I think we're working towards this, um, an organization that can really be doula-led that is becomes uh, a way to support and build the capacity and grow the doula workforce and help support their ability to build uh, for their services and really become... Uh, a cornerstone of advocacy 
both for the doulas themselves so that they can begin to be the social change agents that we know they are in their communities, but also to really um, strengthen their organizational infrastructure and advocacy voice in a completely self-led institution. I would like to see that uh, be established in the state and really uh, begin to carry an agenda for birth equity statewide um, and really be able to set the table for the systemic change that needs to happen at every stage of women's life, promoting good health. Yeah. 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 And if I I could add, Jeannie, if I could just add a piece of that dream in there, I just want to say, if it was really, real, real world dreaming, I would love to see um, obstetricians and chairmen of the departments come out of that ivory tower feeling and really connect to their community. I would love to see the invitation to doulas and other providers from that community be invited into hospitals to change these outcomes, to be able to dream big with us and be able to roll out what we consider a welcome mat to say, we need you to help yeah. us to sustain in this the city that we, that we are, that our hospital lives in. I would, that would be such a, a great dream to see happen. You know what else would be great is if our healthcare providers from, you know, every single person who provides care for America's birthing population, if they actually represented our mm-hmm. birthing population, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what a difference that would make. Wow. Right. Yeah. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love dreaming with you all. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love dreaming big. It's my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what else would you like listeners to know? Uh, for us on the doula side, I'm a part, I'm the, I'm the director or supervisor of a wonderful group of women called Community Doulas of South Jersey. These amazing uh, black and brown women are just uh just uh, some superheroes and they do some of the greatest work. And I'm just uh, proud to be a part of their training process and developmental process and professional uh, aspiration process and seeing them all go on into their own worlds of becoming these great doulas. Uh, we just launched our website. I would like folks to just come on and join us. Come to our website. It's www.communitydoulasofsouthjersey.com. Uh, we also do a talk to a doula at noon every Thursday. That's noon Eastern Standard Time. We are on uh, our Facebook page, Community Doulas of South Jersey, doing a talk to a doula at noon uh, just to talk about various topics, but to keep uh, the doulas in the front of the conversation and add answering questions live on that Facebook Live for anyone who has questions. It's, it's, a, it's an ongoing conversation where we want to make sure that we are giving as much support to expectant families or people who have already had babies and just have follow-up questions. We're not clinicians. We cannot give medical advice, but we can share and uh, what a doula does and how we can be a resource to our community and women who need support. And um, I also think I would like to just uh, offer out, you know, um, uh, getting it for people who are in your listening audience, Jeannie, just to uh, find out if there's community doulas in, 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 your, in your city. Find out ways you can support them. You can find ways to help support with funding to to their calls because a lot of times we all don't run across a, a first lady's office or uh, or uh, a Nicholson Foundation. Sometimes we have to really struggle on the grassroots level and try to go for those grants that we may not all get. 
But if you can be able to be a private donor and support the work of these women who are uh, of color, who are trying their best to do everything possible to maintain these healthier outcomes and maintain a through line for women to be able to have a space to feel safe in, to feel valued in, to be heard in. That's a safe space for women of color and black and black women particularly. Support those groups. Become a supporter and a, a donor to those kind of groups in your own city. Raquel, what about you? What else would you like listeners to know? Well, um, just along the lines of what Rancha was just saying, uh, in, in New Jersey, the Nicholson Foundation is working with the Burke Foundation and two other foundations, the Community Health Acceleration Project and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to form a Nurture New Jersey Funders Collaborative to support the implementation of really key recommendations in a strategic plan um, to really um, look at all of the systemic and uh, social determinants of health and upstream, as well as the uh, in the labor and delivery room clinical factors that are really impacting these maternal mortality and infant mortality rates. So, um, you know, we just, it's possible to work together as a community both of funders and of birth advocates and um, women's health advocates to really, in a, in a strategic and planful way, make significant changes, not only to the clinical setting, but the entire ecosystem where women are striving to be healthy and raise their families in your communities. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. I've got a few rapid fire roundup questions just to close out our, our conversation today. You guys up for it? Fast answers. Sure. Hard to hard, hard questions. Sure. <laughs> and who wants to start? Okay, I'll start. Yep. All right. I've got three questions for you. Go. What role does feminism play in your life? A, a great role, a strong role, very good role. Okay. How do you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Parenting would be so hard. Right? It's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> it's so darn hard. <laughs> <laughs> and my last question for you then is, where do you stand in the world of motherhood? I love this world. I love the world of motherhood. It's, it gives me life. It gives me joy. It teaches me grace. It, it challenges me. And it's, it's ever growing. It's, it's a space that I will always love and, 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 and deal in. And I would love to, I'd love to share this world with so many more to let them know that this is the biggest contribution that we can give to uh, women, to, to babies that come out of our womb or people who we just raise in our villages or in our community. It's just the greatest gift that we can give back, motherhood. Mm. All right, Raquel, your turn. You ready? Mm -hmm. What role does feminism play in your life? It plays a central role in my life. I think feminism has gotten a bad name, but if uh, I were to reconceptualize it with really understanding feminism as a celebration of 
the qualities we attribute to femininity and um, the power of um, caring for others and nurturing. I feel like there's not enough of that energy in the world and we need more of it. And to me, that's what feminism is, bringing that, uh, those feminine values uh, into everything we do. Excellent. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. I would say the same thing, that motherhood and parenting is hard and messy and it brings you to your knees. Oh my God. And plus you have teenagers. You both have teenagers. So it's, yes. it's the worst. <laughs> so it's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Raquel, your last question then is, where do you stand in the world of motherhood? It's been the best thing I've ever done. I mean, I can't. It's so much joy, so much hard work, and it's so rewarding because it is both of those extremes. Oh, great. So the last thing I want to do is give each of you a chance to give me a, a website where people can find out more information about you. Raquel, where can people find out more about your work? The NicholsonFoundation.org. All right. And Rancha, uh, where can people find out about you? Yeah, communitydoulsofsouthjersey.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram at uh, Rancha underscore D or on Twitter at Camden, C the CMD, Warrior Mom. Nice. Well, thank you both for joining the conversation. It's really thank been you. fun. I, I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. So do I. It's been amazing. Wonderful. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much. And um, be sure that you're both in touch when you have other topics you want to discuss. And we'll talk again down the road. Jeannie, thank you. Thank you so much. Raquel, it was such a, such a, such a good time with you. Thank you, Jeannie. Yes, Ronta, always wonderful. So That's it for this week, everybody. I hope you have a really lovely Thanksgiving, whatever that looks like this year. We all have so much to be grateful for. And you know, if there are any silver linings out of the train wreck 2020 was, it is that. No matter what, we have a lot to be grateful for. We'll talk again soon. You can email me at jeanfaulkner.com. That's J-E-A-N-N-E. F as in Frank, A-U-L-K-N-E-R dot com. Tweet me at Jean Faulkner and find us on Instagram and Facebook at Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics. And we are produced by Recluse Records. Talk soon. Bye-bye.